there's many kinds of software, but there's at least two kinds that I'm concerned about. There's software that is new, and there's software that scales. When you're building a new thing, you, you need to iterate very quickly to get in front of people. That's why I'm absolutely opposed to outsourcing when you're at an early stage. Originally, you had one person who basically coded everything, and this made them understand the entire system and be able to tweak it, but it was very inefficient. Specialization is what allows industry to happen. Hi, I'm Paul Berger, founder of CircleCI. I'm Edith Harba, CEO and co-founder at LaunchDarkly. And you're listening to To Be Continuous, a podcast about continuous delivery and software development. You can get in touch with us anytime at our Twitter handle, at ContinuousCast. The show is brought to you by Heavybit. To learn more, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. So what are we going to talk about today, Edith? We're going to talk about the chocolate, but that's for the end of the episode. At the beginning, we're going to talk about... coconut is a desiccant. <laughs> so you've been told. You know, even even doctors learn new things now and then. So, um, the topic? The topic is specialization. How so? So, I think there's a lot of talk about full stack versus full stack engineers. Mm-hmm. And I th- I've heard both sides of this argument, even on our own podcast. So, so to define that, a full stack engineer is someone who can write JavaScript, can write Node.js, and knows Mongo? Uh, well, that's one definition. I okay. think the, the definition is usually just somebody that can write an entire application. Sure. You know, so Chris Gale, who was one of our guests before, talked about how he rotated people between different teams because he didn't really want them to specialize too much. Mm-hmm. Stripe talks a lot about um, T-shaped people. Yeah. So people who are very, very wide and then very, very broad, or sorry, very, very broad and then very deep in one specific topic. Like you know, someone might be particularly good at AI, but still know how to write a web stack or yeah. use one at least. I'm of two minds of this. So I actually got two degrees. I got an engineering degree and an econ degree. Okay. So part of my econ degree, we actually went back and we read The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, which mm-hmm. pretty much kicked off all of econ. Basically, specialization is what allows industry to happen. Mm-hmm. Like originally, you had a farmer and his wife, and they would grow sheep. Mm-hmm. You know, they would go out, they would herd the sheep, they would get the sheep fat, they would trim the sheep, the wife would sit, she would. Spin, make a sweater. Mm-hmm. Great. Very, have, very specific gender roles there. Oh, maybe uh, it was uh, the wife went out and tended the sheep, and the guy stayed home and spun. Mm, maybe. maybe. No judgments. Yeah. So, this is basically artisanal sweater making. Okay. It is also incredibly inefficient. Mm-hmm. You know, because basically you're talking a minimum of two years per sweater. Right. When you talk we're, about. We're definitely getting back to software at some point here, right? It's getting there. Okay. It's getting there. What industrialization did is instead of saying, hey, instead of having one family unit make a sweater every two years, let's have some people make the sheep, some people trim the sheep, mm-hmm. some people card the wool, and let's have machines that will actually spin it, and then another machine that'll make a sweater. Sure. And with this, you can make you know a thousand sweaters in an hour. Okay. Are they handmade with love? No. They're made in a factory somewhere, and the factories are probably geographically distributed from the sheep. It allows intense Scaling. I think software has kind of come from the same place where originally you had one person who basically coded everything, Mm -hmm. who made the database, who made the front end, who made the back end, and this made them understand the entire system and be able to tweak it, Mm -hmm. but it was very inefficient. Interesting. So the the obvious thing here is that there's many kinds of software, but there's at least two kinds that I'm concerned about. There's software that is new. And there's software that scales. Yeah. And so the zero to one and the one to n almost. I think that's a very important um, slice. So so mm-hmm. go on and. 
So if you're creating a new a new product, a new startup, a, a new a software category, something like that, you're probably going to build it with a very very small team. Yeah. And the very small team has to be able to do all the things. Yeah. Because you want the same people to to sort of hold it in their minds. And also to be able to to tweak very quickly. Right. Right. Yeah. Your 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 whole point is is validate and iterate. In and to do that in a very short value chain, very very short amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. So so it's it's much more like creating this this artisanal sweater. Assuming your sheep are already grown or something like that. Well, even then, you have a really quick feedback loop. You could say like, "Hey, that that wool was really dirty. Mm-hmm, sure, you know, sure. don't take them to that pasture anymore." Yeah, and you um, and you have that control because you know that the the person is. I feel our analogy is breaking down here a little bit. No, I feel like the analogy is only getting better. <laughs> so when you're building a new thing, you, you need to iterate very quickly, get in front of people. But the the industrialization, the you know spinning on the loom sort of uh, sort of part of the analogy, is uh, when you have a hundred million people. Using your product, and and then you start to, or even where where you have like ten thousand people building your product, and you start to say, oh, we need to optimize the the website. Uh, we need someone who actually knows something about databases to, to to take this part over, or whatever. Yeah, or you know, our onboarding emails they were fine for where we were right then, right? But now we actually have the ability to start to optimize them. Sure, sure, and and you can go several layers down. So so you start by you know, oh, you know, maybe we need to rewrite the web server to have lower latency, and then it's like, oh, maybe we need to rewrite this in C, and then it's like, oh, maybe C isn't really that good. Maybe we need to make a new programming language that that's better, and you just sort of go lower and lower down the chain until you hit the order of magnitude that that, that you're able to hit with that change. Yeah, I mean, and to, to go to talk about Dropbox for a second, I mean, there's this big trend right now where people are either moving on or off AWS. Mm-hmm. So Dropbox right. moved off AWS because they felt like it was something they had to take back in house. Right, right. But so, they I mean, were at the scale where it made sense. Right, exactly. So, so they got to a ten billion valuation, I think, and then it's like, okay, AWS no longer makes sense for us. Yeah, but I think there is because they lo- have the specializers. They have the specializers. I think yeah. there is. So I'll argue and agree with you. I think. People sometimes confuse what stage they're at, mm-hmm. and they prematurely optimize either for scaling up, mm-hmm. or they think they have to continue to do everything in house. Well, I, th- I think this is the the sort of the role of the full stack engineer, or, or why people are so into full stack engineers. Because when you're super early, you need to not have to pass a feature. To several different people to get it done because that's a lot of communication overhead. You really want to say this is a feature we need, and someone who can, you know, bring up the AWS instance, configure the database, write the code, write the front end, and then there's a there's a feature that that comes out of it. Yeah, and that's that's why I'm absolutely opposed to outsourcing when you're in an early stage startup mm-hmm. for your core engineering. Right. If you're a software company. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. No, it's it's it, outsourcing is ludicrous. I, I keep meeting these people who tell me that they have a great idea for a product and they just need to get it to a good outsourcing team and then and then ship it and it's like and then what what happens after the first iteration or the first round of feedback? What are you going to do then? And they talk about. Uh, outsourcing to people who are in a different time zone, different language, different culture. Oh my god! But like, just uh, imagine, imagine the feedback loop on on someone in a different time zone. Oh, I've done that. I mean, we we outsourced before to India, and you know, it was different culture, mm-hmm. different. You know, every iteration took at least three days. Oh, wow! I think people fail to realize how much in a startup, how much of the product is everything, not just the code, but everything around it, like mm-hmm. the documentation. Like a lot of yeah. our, a lot of our customers read our documentation before they sign up, yeah, and yeah. they say, uh, not to brag about our docs, but people yeah. say your, your docs are lovely. Well, for for a dev tool company, docs are marketing material. Yeah, they have to be good. Yeah, 
And so people think oh, we'll just ship a product and then the money comes in. Yeah, yeah. So I'm arguing passionately for non-specialization, but I think people cling to that for too long, and then they realize that there is a point where it makes sense to start to break apart roles. Well, I think the first area that you start to see that that specialization is around the front end. So typically, you'll get someone who can do some portion of the front end. So they can they can either design UXs. You know, so the the, the role of the designer is you know the, 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 there's UX designer, there's graphics designers, there's people who can write HTML and CSS. There's interaction designers. Interaction designers, and and typically on. You know, the front end of a web stack, you end up with like a, a PM who's doing some sort of UX, or maybe that's the founder or something like that, or maybe that role is kind of goes in with the engineer as well, who's particularly skilled at that. And then you know, someone is is writing the JavaScript and and the the app kind of portion of it, and then someone's you know constructing the the, the CSS that styles it, and you end up with this conflict because usually a designer and an engineer and let's let's say a founder type person or or, or a pm type person all have overlapping skill sets yep. and all feel that that their contribution or, or sort of ownership is around a certain part of it and you end up with with feelings like a designer who's being told to just you know style this and make it a bit pretty or something like that i, I think is how it, how it usually manifests itself oh gosh she just opened up like 15 years of memories in a second mm. oh no uh, anything you want to discuss, or should we leave that for your therapist? Uh, this podcast is my therapy. <laughs> I think there's too much to say in a single sentence, except for I think people need to feel ownership of a particular area, mm-hmm. and they need to have boundaries and ownership, and sometimes the worst part is that you have somebody in a role who is absolutely the wrong person for that role. Mm-hmm. And that's incredibly difficult. Yeah, I guess the important part of that is is that there has to be sort of a, a team ownership, in the sense that if one person... Individually owns it, then then someone else can't own it, right? The, you know, ownership is a is a, a unique thing that 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 someone has, and that that's kind of the point. That at the same time, the team has to own it, but there has to be someone who's making a decision. You can't just operate on consensus all the time. That's interesting because I've heard of some companies that seem to operate on that, and I'd say that my my own company, so Launch Darkly, mm. we are pretty consensus driven. There's nothing wrong with being consensus driven, but at the end of the day. You have to have one vision, and you have to be going in one direction, and that that's true at a at a company level. And it's also true at at an individual feature level and an individual or at a product level. I think we're about to go into Edith's therapy, so let me let me talk <laughs> about more general things. Well, so you talked about front end and back end and 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 that sort of thing as, as specialization. How else do you see people specializing? Oh, I mean, an entire organization. Once you start to get bigger, starts to specialize. You start to have people that just write emails. Mm-hmm. You start to have people that just do analyst relations. You start to have people that just do PR. I mean, right, you just right, start right. to separate out these various roles. Mm-hmm. So w- w- within within software, so we we talked about like front end and back end. The things that 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 seems kind of obvious to me is, is is that there's there's now the people who build mobile front ends. Yep. There's the people who who scale and who focus on the DevOps side of things. So one of the, the points of, of DevOps was that the developers now do now do ops, right? And that, I think that's kind of died. Oh, it's funny because I've been going to a lot of DevOps conferences because feature flags yeah, yeah, are course. part of DevOps. Yeah. And every DevOps conference I've gone to, people are, say, DevOps has no definition. Okay. Originally, it was the fact that devs did operations, as you said. And now yeah. people say they're like recruiters are like, we get a lot of requests for DevOps people in Atlanta. Right. Do you know any DevOps people? Right. Which is kind of like a total Although, I mean, per- perversion it, of yeah. the original intent. I mean, the, the the way that that I thought this was going to go 
was that we would stick dev in front of everything, and you know there'd be dev sales and dev marketing. <laughs> and, and, well, and, that's a dev evangelist. Well, yeah, I mean, dev evangelist is 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 basically evangelizes the yeah no you you you're right exactly so you stick dev in front of everything and then once you've got like dev legal and, and dev janitor that then everyone realizes it's dev in front of every role and you drop it and it's just you know janitor because the world of devops has become so large like there's so much to know around aws and google cloud platform and openstack and queues and reliability and and you know it goes all the way down to you know how many ops are are running into this thing and and all the way up to you know how do i write an ansible config so de- de- the ops now devops side of things has become so large that i think you can definitely have a small team that that starts to build their own at the start, but you're really going to get it. Really, doesn't take that many users before you start getting a need to specialize around that. Yeah, I'd say though it has gotten easier. I mean, I remember you used to have a dedicated ops person just to tend to your server. Like you used to physically have somebody build you boxes. Sure, sure, sure. And yeah. you just you just don't have that anymore. Right. I yes, un, until your Dropbox size. Yeah, and, and you know, Dropbox has someone who's building servers. Yeah, but I mean that's yeah. immense. Yes, yeah, it is. It is. It's funny that that there was this feeling around 2000 that you know it it took a lot of money to to build a company, right? So so people were raising five million Series A because you had to build the boxes and you had to put them in your in your servers and you know someone was was actually racking things and and so on. And then around I would say 2009 to 2011. There was this time where you could build a startup for very, very cheap, right? Yeah. So, so, so you could do it for like, uh, you know, p- people are raising rounds of like 500k and and you getting somewhere with that. And I think that that has completely changed again because the size of the ecosystem that people are building for is is just immense. So now. When you start a company, you need some DevOpsy stuff. You need someone to write a front end thing, which is which is really quite separate from how people are writing back ends. And you need iOS, you need Android. They, they might be two separate people. I think we've gotten to the scale of things where it's gotten fat again, and it's it's not it's not so much lean, scrappy companies that you know where, where two founders build it all themselves. I, I think we've gotten to the point where where the standards and and the sort of things that people expect are actually much much larger than that again. Well, so I agree with you, but I disagree with you. Okay. I think you do need more than you used to have. I do think that's true. I, I think you can be very choosy about where you invest first. Like, I think you can either say, "Hey, we're going to be mobile first, mm-hmm. or we're going to be web first. Okay. Like, I think well, and, you, I think you do Android need to make that decision. I think Android is not making money for people, so there you don't you can go longer without an Android app. Interesting. Unless so unless you're specifically making the decision that you're going after the Android market. Really, I, I haven't I haven't seen that. Or, or I don't have an Android. Um, are people just leaving the Android app for for some time later? It depends totally on what you're doing. I mean, if you're a consumer app, I think you do have to invest in platforms. But mm. I mean, even when I was at TripIt, like we never built a BlackBerry app. Right. Right. Of course. Yeah. I mean, and I was the person we looked at the numbers. We're like, this does not make sense for us. Right. We had a third party who used their API to build a Windows app, mm-hmm. but it never made sense for us to build internally. So you could still be choosy about what you're doing, even if right, you're right, right. a mobile app. The flip side of this is is that while the platforms get much much larger and many more of them, the the tooling around them get much better. I was reading today someone's tweet about how they built their iOS app in nine months and they built the Android app in one day because they use React Native. Yeah. And in that sense, while the breadth of things that you need to learn, I've heard I heard the term recently, JavaScript fatigue. While the breadth of things you need to learn is is getting broader and broader, at the same time there's kind of consolidation around things and React and and the world around React is is one nice consolidation at the moment. 
Yeah, and also I, th- I think people don't realize how good they have at it that stuff is in the cloud and you don't have to build installed stuff. Mm-hmm. Like we used to have to worry about app servers, web servers, and databases. You, you don't now? Well, I guess you don't need to deal with app servers so much anymore. Like, no, like what app servers, web servers, and databases our customers had. Oh, oh, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. I, rem- I remember build scripts that dealt with like 20 different Unixes. Yeah, I mean, so we, we, we had an on prem solution that it wasn't on prem back then, it was just our, our software. Mm hmm. And I was in charge of the support of platform age, which was literally like what version of Sybase and WebLogic we would right. support. Would, oh, that's a disaster. Yeah, and that was yeah. a lot of our effort was just making sure that we worked on different platforms. Yeah, just don't have to worry about that anymore. Yeah, uh, everything's a HTTP-based API basically. Yeah. yeah, yeah, until it's not. So the thing I was playing with recently was the Slack API, and to talk to Slack is not actually a uh, HTTP-based API anymore. It's a WebSockets-based API that I, I don't know how it works because it, there's a library. But in order to hold a conversation with a with a Slack button, I guess it's it's for latency reasons. Um, it's a WebSocket connection, and it's not really a HTTP-based API anymore. I'll give another. So I got an engineering degree also, mm-hmm. um, and I was hanging out with my engineering friends who were doing robotics engineering, and they were talking about a really interesting breakpoint in their company, which is where they made a prototype, a working prototype. Mm-hmm. And now they're trying to scale up to make thousands of these in China. Oh, no, and just what a different mindset it is. Oh my god, I I, I looked into this. That that world is fucking crazy. Well, and like so, my friend's a VP of engineering, um, mm-hmm. and he's classical. Like, you think I'm a curmudgeon? This guy is a curmudgeon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, they need to stop taking parts off my prototype. <laughs> you know, we're trying to document everything and mm-hmm. get it to China, where yeah, it's going to yeah, be yeah. in an assembly line. Where you know people who are gonna have to put these parts together, and yeah. they won't just what you were saying about how at the very beginning you you have all this time to make all these decisions about yeah, tweaks. Yeah, yeah. Well, when so you it, when you're assembling something on a machine line, you have the exact opposite. That's a really interesting world, and and a lot of the sort of continuous delivery things around hardware devices are super super interesting. You can be building a hardware device in San Francisco. And you can sort of you know solder things and and uh, fiddle with them and uh, and all that sort of thing. But when you need a component, you often have to wait like a week or two. Uh-huh. Versus when you go to Shenzhen in China, a new component is like you go to these massive components warehouses and you get like a component an hour later. And so it, it's all about the turnaround time. So you can get the turnaround time to be super super low prototyping in Shenzhen versus prototyping in San Francisco. And then if you're prototyping in, in Arkansas or something, you're you're even you're more fucked. Yeah. yeah. And then it's the same thing with, with when you want to get something out, you know, you want to get a thousand of something and then when you get a million of something. You can use companies that outsource it, like a company called Flextronics, or you can you can use like you know small scale Factories that'll produce, you know, thousands of them uh, a week or something like that, or or you can go the whole way to like, you know, produce a, a CAD design and and talk to a bunch of different factories in China that will give you competitive things, and then you go for dinner with the factory owner. That's how you know that you're actually getting into the factory. Uh, it's fascinating, and and like it's the whole world is fucking mental, and I'm so glad <laughs> I built software. <laughs> it's funny. So um, I worked for a hardware company. We made um we made it basically a, a Fitbit for plants. Uh, that sounds like something the world needs. Uh, hey, it, it sounds like the punchline at the end of a, of a Silicon Valley episode. Hey, oh, 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 what, what are you guys making? <laughs> we're, we're making a Fitbit for plants. So, I was gonna uh, make something about. I, I'm making a Tinder for dogs. <laughs> a killer for mosquitoes. Nice. So it was before the Fitbit really exists, but uh, we help people grow better plants. 
Mm-hmm. Which is actually a very human, deep urge, and that's how we stopped becoming a hunter gatherers and became a higher civilization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's valuable, I'm sure. <laughs> you definitely didn't waste two years of your life on that. <laughs> I found it incredibly useful because I learned so much. People still use our Fitbit for plants. All six of them. Oren bought five himself. No way. Yeah. Yeah. The the quantified self in in some form. Oren was a persona we had, the gadget guy. The gadget, ah, okay. So Oren bought a bunch for the Heroku office. Right, right, of course, for the Heroku office. The Heroku office is like the definitive gadget guy. Yeah, I had the gadget guy, yeah. you know, who wanted to measure his plants. Mm-hmm. We if, manu- if you're any company that's building any sort of gadgetry, the Heroku office is an excellent <laughs> first customer. They, they, they will buy whatever you have. <laughs> you should just go over there outside. And if they, and if they don't buy it, perhaps you have a, a real issue. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's, that's where really I learned that hardware was hard and software was soft. Um, because we, we had to manufacture in China. We actually yeah. made at a doll factory. Yeah. You know, uh, like they were making like little dolls, and mm-hmm. then we did a run of about ten thousand units. Mm-hmm. Something went wrong with those units, and it was of a course. hassle. Oh no! Like we had to open every single unit, mm-hmm. fix it. Right. Whereas with software, just ship something else. Yeah. The analogy of like you know architecture and, and engineering to like you know construction or civil engineering, and it's like you know if if you want to if you want to rebuild the foundations of a bridge, that's a thing you will never ever do. Uh, whereas, if you want to rebuild the the foundations of your of your software architecture, that that that's you know somewhere between a one and a three week project. Well, I'd say that this runs into trouble because sometimes that's actually like a three year project. Okay, yeah, yeah. Like sometimes business users and even in software users think that everything is mutable mm-hmm. when it's not. Right, 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 right. Well, it depends how good uh, your your API contracts are. That's to, 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 to a certain extent, you can you can lift up a house, redo the foundations, and then put the house back down. It's a good metaphor. It depends whether you're also how much you're redoing versus elevating that house, maybe to mm-hmm. like putting on stilts or something like that. Yeah, or maybe putting you know a underground pool and mm-hmm. a water Ooh. slide. Yeah. All right, we we we've tortured this metaphor to death. Right. Um, specialization. I think it's all about the right stage. I think so. To go back to the robotics example, mm-hmm. they had a working prototype. Yeah, they'd proved that people liked it. I mm-hmm. think if they'd prematurely scaled and started putting something they'd built that wasn't very good into the hands of everybody, it would not have done them any good. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's interesting to look at the uh, look at this this thing as sort of the stages of VC financing. So you know, you, you have a seed round to build something, uh, and it's a small seed round, and it's to validate that there's that there's some kind of market for something, or, or the, that the product can be built in, in in some cases, and that's a thing where you need like very little specialization. You might need like one specific specialization if you're if you're building AI. You might need people who who are you know super into AI or, or, or know something about that probably. Whereas when when you get to the next stage and the stage after that, you know it's really it's really about expanding. And it's really about getting much more specialized people who are able to do that specific job much more specifically. In in the hardware example, the you know the seed round is often to to cobble something together, and then you do your Kickstarter as the next uh, source of funding, and then you do your Series A to to really um, bring that uh, to market in, in in some more meaningful way. Yeah, I, I think people underestimate how hard Kickstarter campaigns are. Oh yeah, no, it seems really hard now. Like right. there's, I I think there's there's probably some Kickstarter guru out there who's like you know the marketer that you bring in to make your Kickstarter campaign work, and everyone else is just kind of guessing. Yeah, my um so another guy who went to my college, Dan Shapiro, 
has a um, couple of the most successful Kickstarter campaigns ever. Mm. And he so wrote, he, he, he's the Kickstarter whisperer? Uh, <laughs> he runs a company that makes, uh, his, his current company makes uh, 3D lasers. Oh, wow. Glow, Glowforge. Okay. But um, he, he wrote a really good blog article about just how much work it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like people have this delusion that. Just, no, I mean like you need to get PR for your Kickstarter campaign. Yeah. You need to you need to have a viral marketing thing. You have to You iterate on your video. Of course, of course. Yeah, m- m- multiple times I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Like like people uh, I think people have this misconception that virality just happens on its own. There's a wonderful um, essay. I, I think it was either Joel on Software wrote it, or, or it was on the Joel on Software forums, or, or something along those lines. It was about the guy who uh, he was a software engineer, and he uh, you know deeply loved building products the right way, and and all that jazz. And one day he uh, he quit his job, and he sat down in a room to to write the new piece of software. And he wrote something beautiful and elegant and gorgeous and, and all that jazz. And then he set it out there for, for people to come. The better mousetrap. I, I think it's not important what, what, what it was, but he set it out there for people to come and, and, then, and then nobody came. Well, Paul, haven't you ever heard that story? It's a better mousetrap? You build a better mousetrap, the world will beat a path to your door. I, I, no, I the, haven't heard that. Oh, that's a famous American saying. Yeah. My joke just like... Yeah, no, it cratered and, and ruined my story. So the the guy has has built this thing and you know he makes a website for it and and, and nobody comes. Bettermousetrap.com. And then he goes back to his job a little bit a little bit sadder and a little bit worried about the world and, and he goes back and does the same thing as he was doing before, but now the, the spark is gone. And I feel that this this is sort of the the analogy for obviously it's it's for why you need sales and marketing. Um, but in the in the Kickstarter world, it's like it's it's not just that you need a little bit of sales. You don't just need a little bit of marketing. You need to like totally dedicate yourself to the thing that that your your to, to your go to market. And a lot of people find it much much easier. A lot of engineers in particular who who want to start startups find it much much easier to build more code when you know something's not working. Let's write a bit more code. Whereas you know, versus something's not working, can we get a, a co marketing post with this you know larger channel or something like that? Yeah, thank you for publishing our blog post when we were very young. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's the thing people need, right? It's uh. which in a, in a which was the Joel test for continuous delivery. Right. Yeah, that that, that, that was a great article. I, I think it's interesting when you were talk, talking about Kickstarter because even in Kickstarter campaigns, there's specialists. Oh yeah, yeah. Right, right. You know, heaven forbid you want to do some other campaign that's like Kickstarter. Like an Indiegogo, or uh, well, I don't specifically mean Indiegogo, but I mean like there's. You know, you, you can do a Kickstarter campaign, but there's also like a much larger world of sort of crowdsourcing and and you know viral campaigns of some kind where where you're doing it without the Kickstarter channel, I guess. So, but yeah, if you're trying to do a Kickstarter campaign and you don't have Kickstarter, I think people also underestimate total addressable market versus value of their product. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like there are many products that are immensely valuable, mm-hmm. but have a very small number of people that want them. Okay. I think we talked about this in another episode. So, like, you might have a hundred thousand people who really, really want your product and will pay a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And Kickstarter is more suited, perhaps, to something that millions of people want. Mm-hmm. You know, there's an interesting um, set of sort of polarizing things. So, there are some markets where a very polarizing product succeeds. So, the U.S. presidential election at the moment, right? A, a very oh, no, I'm really getting yeah, therapy. Yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the 
you know, it's. Well, you it, can always go back to Ireland. Yeah, no, I'm thinking of Canada. Actually, it, look, it looks very nice up there. I hear um, it's cold. I, I hear it's very free up there. I hear it's cold, particularly in the winter. Well, yeah, maybe the winter I'll go to Mexico. I'll, I'll alternate between your neighbors. Also, when the snow melts, there's a lot of mosquitoes. Anyway, certain election systems like the one in the U.S. Uh, favor a polarizing candidate. In Kickstarter, it's it's a, it's a kind of a polarizing product as well. You have to have something that that people people really really love, and it's okay if ninety five percent of the world hates it, but you'll still succeed on Kickstarter. But if you want to succeed in the world at large, you have to be something that everyone loves, and not just like a very very small number of people love. Well, it depends on what the product is. Yes, if if, if you're targeting particular niches or, or that sort of thing. The lesson is that if people hate your product, but a small number of people love it, that that can still be a really good thing. Yeah, I mean that's a classic Dave McClure thing. Oh yeah, you know it's it's better to be hated than to be ignored. Um, yeah, yeah. Pokemon Go is a lovely example of this. There's a bunch of people who fucking love that thing, and there's a lot of people who seem to really, really hate it. Who could hate Pokemon? I think I think there's a lot of get off my lawn mentality going on. Like who who could hate who could hate Pokemon? I it's, guess people with lawns. I actually, uh, I I think I'm at peak Pokemon. Oh, you think you're done with it? I've caught all the interesting things. I, I, I tried it and I, I really didn't get anywhere. Dude. I expected that. So I was away when Pokemon Go came out and I expected that when I got back to San Francisco there'd just be Pokemon people fucking everywhere. And I've barely seen any. It was scary when I was in Sydney. Oh yeah? So I was in Sydney for a conference and I went down to Sydney Harbor mm-hmm. and there were literally Pokemon zombies. So I guess the opera houses oh. were like so like <laughs> I, just like wandering around into traffic and it was literally like there was this light rain and there's mm. about 500 people all playing Pokemon and right. you knew they were Pokemon players because they had the battery pack and they had the app yeah. open and they're all like sitting there like killing all the Pokemon so I and I would this. silently judge them except for <laughs> I was playing Pokemon too is it my imagination or is this not really a thing in San Francisco? Like I, I, I've seen the there was something in Fisherman's Wharf. There was some event up there, and there was an event in like Dolores Park where like thirty thousand people went. But I don't see it on like a daily basis. I think there's concentrations where uh, there's more Pokemon, mm-hmm. and that's where those people doing it are. Like I would go running through the botanical park in Sydney, uh-huh. and there's this one area where there's just a lot of people hanging out playing Pokemon. Um, all right, we're twenty-seven different tangents off here. Well, we specialize. <laughs> we specialize. <laughs> All right. Our our next podcast next week will be a little more generalized, I think. Well, let's let's sum up. I think specialization is good at the right time. And Paul is going to and cut. <laughs> you never heard of a better mousetrap? Thanks for listening to this episode of To Be Continuous, brought to you by Heavybit and hosted by me, Paul Bigger of Circle CI, and Edith Harbaugh of Launch Darkly. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. While you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. Mm-hmm.